Spotlight Now brings you in-depth interviews with newsmakers around the state on key issues facing our community. Spotlight Now, Tuesdays at 1 and 7 on K5. Sponsored by the Hawaii Executive Collaborative. Repairing Earth, and today we are talking about Hawaii's whale season. We are joined by Ed Lyman, who works under NOAA's Hawaiian Islands Humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Emily, for having me. Yeah, so just want to get straight into it. Can you tell me a little bit what you guys are seeing in this year's whale season? Yeah, well, we're seeing a, a healthy population, a healthy return of humpback whales to really what's their principal breeding grounds, breeding calving grounds here and around the Hawaiian Islands. So a lot of whales, a lot of mothers and calves. I know just recently we put that reminder out to the on-water community to watch for those mothers and calves. So pretty healthy population. Do we have all the, you know, people ask us, do you have the numbers? Do you know how many? We don't, we, we don't have that much science going on. We do our best to monitor the animals to get that information. Uh, but we have an early sense. I, I would have some themes here is that they appear to come fairly early. And generally speaking, they've been peaking it at earlier within the season. We are within the peak season right now. January, February, March is the peak numbers. I can tell you that much for sure. For peak numbers, what what's the range for that in the thousands? Um, oh, thousands. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can give you that much of a generalization. Again, we won't have the, any, you know, exact number in that regard. And remember, they're coming and going. So even when I say things like peak season, January, February, March, and, and I might indicate, or I haven't yet, but I will do no, so now, is that generally the earlier sightings would be, well, sometimes late September, October, November, and then, you know, the more whales start to come in in November, December, and then they'll stay, some of them, through April and May, okay? But they're coming and going. Those whales aren't like, they're not staying six months. You know, someone might just stay a matter of weeks uh, or maybe a month or so, and they're coming and going throughout that period of time, generally November through April. You said that they're coming in earlier. Does that have any impact with perhaps climate change or warming waters or anything like that? It could. There has been that, you know, again, the last couple seasons, we've seen them uh, arrive a little earlier in, in those higher density values. Um, and then peak at those higher density values a, a little earlier in the season, like, you know, towards very early uh, February or mid-February versus what, if you go back a decade ago, it was more like early March was the peak point, the top of the curve, and, and then the beginning of the decline in numbers throughout the rest of the season, the tail end of the season. So now that could very well be related to environmental changes like climate change. Uh, I don't think we have all the answers there. Very much related to food, though. It's you know, a more direct impact to them. Talking about humpback whales and other whales coming to Hawaii, how important are whales to Hawaii's marine ecosystem? Oh, just, you know, a great question, Emily, and just in a number of ways. You know, biologically, they're, they're value. I mean, uh, they're iconic in many ways. And we, we like to think of them as the ambassadors for the ecosystem here, at least for part of the year. I mean, Think about it. People refer to this time of year as whale season, at least many people do, right? Whale season. And um, well, they have that biological importance, the ecological importance. Okay, they're part of an ecosystem, right? Um, you know, when they're coming down here, they're they're not feeding much. We think they, you know, for the most part, they're fasting. 
but they are also producing or providing input into this ecosystem. So there's just an example. A lot of times people see fish around a whale. Those fish are eating the skin off the whale. So it's the other way. They're, you know, the whale isn't eating the fish. The fish is eating the whale. And that's just one example of that intermixing, that productivity and intertwinedness with the ecosystem. Then there are cultural aspects, significance, you know, part of the Native Hawaiian community, part of that. There is the so, uh, socioeconomic value of humpback whales. Uh, whale season is, you know, the whale is whale watching season. You know, I'll give you, there's one example there. So the tourist industry can, can um, appreciate these animals in that regard. So just a broad-based value of humpback whales to Hawaii. Absolutely. And you touched on all those different sectors that it can impact. And that's really important to know. It's like the cultural aspect, the scientific aspect, the yep. tourism aspect. There's just yep. so many. Yep. And I just wanted to talk a little bit more about what you do at the sanctuary and like what your job is. Yeah. So um, I'm in charge of two major aspects of the sanctuary. We all wear many hats, you know. Um, but two major things is one is the large whale entanglement response. We actually had a, a response to an entangled whale a couple of days ago. Um, part of the team off of Kona responded and was able to cut a humpback whale free. So we take a lead role there in coordinating that effort. I mean, we're not, I may not go out and cut a whale free, but I might work with others and coordinate their efforts as we did with uh, the team in Kona a couple of days ago in cutting whales free. And here's the segue gaining information. There's science in that effort. We, we like to save a whale, but we like to gain information like why did the whale get entangled? How it got entangled? What gear was it? What part of the gear? Where did that gear come from? The source of the gear? And that's all information that might help mitigate or reduce the threat in the future. Okay. Now, there's so there's that science with the response of saving a whale. And then we do some science. We do some monitoring. Keep a, a finger on the pulse of humpback whales. Just as we said, they're very valuable. They can be ambassadors. They can tell us a lot about the overall ecosystem. So we have a program that I'm in charge of. It's called the Health and Risk Assessment of Humpback Whales. So Health of and Risk to Humpback Whales. Can you kind of talk a little bit more about what you're seeing in these whales' health this year in this whale season and kind of a little bit more specifics on the risks that these whales face? I mean, generally speaking, a healthy population and kind of goes, this goes along with that is generally speaking, healthy individuals. Okay. So we're not seeing, a, you know, a lot of, you know, overtly so um, emaciated or thin whales or whales with lesions or anything like that. So generally a health so far, okay. Things can change. Remember time will tell uh, a healthy population in that regard. Now, are there some concerns? Are there risks? You know, you mentioned climate change. We are definitely watching that because We've gone through some changes um, recently. Um, just just a number of years ago, there was a big heat wave out in the, in the North Pacific at high latitude. You had El Nino. You had factors that were indeed challenging many marine animals, humpback whales included. And we saw changes. We saw few, probably fewer animals coming to Hawaii, maybe not able to do so. Maybe fatalities, mortalities occurring from that, You know, maybe not eating well enough. So, we're keeping a, a finger on the pulse in that regard. Now, on the risk side, you know, some of the risk factors are things like I just spoke to entanglement threat. You know, even the large whale, 40 tons, is still impacted by entanglement. And then there's things like 
uh, vessel contacts, or vessel strikes, okay? And that can work both ways, by the way. The, the boat can hit the whale and the whale can hit the boat, okay? And we had, we've actually had cases just recent, last week, where both of those played out, where unfortunately, you know, a uh, boat transiting through whale-dense waters, a lot of the sanctuary waters around the Hawaiian Islands, a lot of a lot of uh, whales right now, as we pointed out, a lot of mothers and calves, and and it was a calf that was hit, you know, so unfortunate event. And then that same day, later that same day, a surprise encounter of a what we think was an adult whale, uh, you know, came right up beside a boat, um, part of the body, we think it was the fluke, the tail, came across the boat and actually hit someone and knocked that person, a crew member in the boat, uh, out of the water out of the boat into the water. Uh, she's doing okay um, so far, you know, she's doing, but a little scary scenario there. So just to point out two examples of, you know, well, it's a examples, two examples of how we, in, in a sense, can impact the animals be a, a risk factor, but one example attached of how the whales can impact us too. You know. How can boaters and spectators prepare for incidents like these? Right, yep. We just have to be vigilant, you know, especially on, well, let's start with the vessel contacts. You know, we're sharing these waters, which are, again, really important water, these animals. This is, this is their breeding cavern. the principal one. You know, majority of the humpback whales come to Hawaii, you know. And so we have to share those waters, respect the animals, and be vigilant. Uh, and that by vigilant, I mean, like, you know, have an extra observer, um, you know, at the helm, uh, helping the health person look for those animals, the cues that, you know, so you don't get surprised. We don't get too close and have contact. Um, communicating with each other. You know, you, uh, one operator sees a mother calf outside of harbor, let the rest, you know, let the other boats know that there's a mother calf. Calves are small. I mean, they're like 12, 15 feet when they're born. Um, and they, I mean, relatively speaking, you get a little sea state, they can be hard to see. So helping your your fellow mariner out there, um, boater, if you will, in that regard. And then I like to say, like, keeping a hands on the helm, you know, literally a hand on the wheel, a hand on the throttle, so that you're ready to respond if that surprise encounter, that close encounter occurs. Those are things we can do. And then speed is a big one. Speed, you know, a slower speed is going to allow you, the health person, maneuver, you know, detect and maneuver away. It's going to let the whale detect and maneuver away and avoid that, that contact. So slower speeds are good. We are putting some relatively recent guidance out there now. Some of that science we were talking about earlier, we've determined that 15 knots or less is a better speed, it's a safer speed, okay? Um, and then of course, we're gonna have a little, like obviously boats are different. So we're gonna add, you know, safe planing speed. You know, obviously you gotta be able to operate your boat at that speed as well, so, but, 15 knots or less when just transiting through, you know, Hawaii's coastal waters, you know, where the whales are, typically at 600 feet or less during whale season, you know, maybe November through, through April, okay, into May. Um, you know, if you can, adhering to that guidance of 15 knots or less while transiting through those waters. Now, there's a little side note here. Um, we've had cases, I think it's like around 17% of the cases of contacts occur when we're whale, when we're watching the animals, we're whale watching, okay? It's a directed approach. Um, so you've, you've, you know, you've come in and, and you're enjoying the animals, you're viewing them and learning from them and all. And in that case, we're asking mariners to do six knots or less when you're within 400 yards. Again, that's guidance, 
okay, based on science. Um, and what we think is happening there is, you know, no one's hitting the whales that they're watching, that they know are there. And of course, no one wants to hit the whales, um, but they're watching a certain group of whales for a period of time, maybe it's 10 minutes, 20, and they're, they're enjoying the animals from that legal distance of 100 yards. So that's, there's a, a, a law there, 100 yards, okay, do not approach. Um, but at that time, they're not looking behind them at the other whales. And then now the 20 minutes is over, they're heading back to the harbor, and they no longer have the mental kind of schematic diagram of where the other whales might be. They're at a disadvantage. And so basically at slow speed, in part, might give them a little time to kind of get their bearings, you know, see some blows, see some where some groups are. Oh, there's a mother and calf over here. And that's what we hope. Okay. And again, this is for the animal's sake, but for the ocean user's sake as well. Remember our story of the of the poor crew member getting hit in the head, you know, lucky incident there. So we don't we want to avoid those as well on the human side. You know, since I have you on, I also wanted to talk about the recent beached well on Kauai and how the recent autopsy found fish nets and other marine debris, plastic bags. How concerning is that finding? Yeah, you know, I won't speak too much to this, Emily, because I wasn't directly involved. You know, we partition uh, our roles. And as I said, I focus on the, the large whales that are entangled in gear. This is a little different in that the animal wasn't entangled in the gear, the sperm whale, but it had, it had ingested plastics, you know, and as you said, netting and things of that nature. And it caused what I saw in the news, so I can only speak to that and maybe leave it at that, is a blockage was theorized, you know, so that's how the animal was impacted. So it is concerning. Um, and it's just yet another example of just, I don't know, in some ways, the broad-based nature of these risk factors. It's not just one or, or two, it's it's a number of them. We've already spoken to whale vessel contacts, entanglements, in, uh, you know, ingestion of plastics and marine debris, um, harassment. And we were talking about, you know, the general term for when we when we do get too close to the whales, you know, and that's back to the 100-yard rule. So these are all risk factors that we just got to be aware of. And as a, as a community, a general, you know, the, the broad-based community, we've got to work together. And I think people in Hawaii do very well. I will say that. I think that a law of spirit and the, the caring, the kuleana, the, um, you know, all that is there. Um, and, and we do have these instances occur. Um, and right now, they're happening a little bit more because, hey, it's peak season. So we, have, especially now, that's my, I'm going to come right back to this. And that is right now, we've got to be very vigilant. We've got to be very careful out there because there's a there are a lot of whales. And, you know, I just want to talk a little bit more about, you know, your focus on entanglements um, in your past findings and dealing with that. Where are you kind of seeing this gear from? Are mm. they local? Are they like larger like corporations that just like you know in the fishing lines and how the waves work and it comes into our waters and stuff like that but what is kind of the research and the findings that you guys gotten so far gotcha well thank you for that question because uh, you know the sanctuary and the whole partnership we have with the community and the other agencies we care about the fact that we you know we love saving whales we love cutting them free and, and when we can okay they can't promise the community we're going to cut everywhere free but the science behind it we we want to walk that talk of gathering information towards prevention and so your question is all of the above okay the or the answer to your question is all of the above 
Okay. It is not just one type of gear. So it is, I would say the majority of it is fishing gear, but not all of it. Okay. And it's probability. There's a lot of fishing gear out there. Okay. And then fishing gear, of course, can become marine debris with other sources. We get, a, we get marine debris. We've had scientific gear be entangled around whales. Okay. Pretty much everything and anything out in the water column, we have logged in as resulting in entangled an entanglement. I can break this down another way, is most of the gear that we find on these larger whales, like the humpback whales that come here, breed, give birth, nurse or young, ends up being fixed gear. And what I mean by that, it's set and left, okay? So an anchor, a mooring, uh, a, a trap gear, like fishing traps or shrimp traps, okay? Things like that. They're set and left for a period of time. Most of what we find getting entangled in these large whales ends up being that type of gear versus mobile gear, you know, uh, a trawler dragging a net behind it, you know, less so of that. And then um, as far as breakdown of sources, I would say, you know, point out that the science doesn't give us all the answers. So in general, okay, if you allow me this, about one third of the time, we do not know where the gear is coming from. It's just a piece of line that we cannot connect the dots. And those dots are spaced out temporally and spatially because when you're 40 tons, you can drag the gear off the ocean floor in most cases and swim off with it. And you can carry that gear for a long time. So literally, I'm gonna, and here's where my, I'm gonna let you know that some of the whales have dragged the gear from their feeding grounds. They have dragged gear 2000 plus nautical miles, straight line distance, from places like the west side of the Pribilof Islands in the middle of the Bering Sea, um, some shrimp pot gear off of Wrangell, Alaska, uh, trap gear like a king crab, you know, the big deadliest catch stuff um, in the Aleutians, like Unamat Pass, have come down to the Hawaiian Islands. Whales have dragged parts of those gear that we could identify. So in that case, we could identify them. They were not in the knowns. Okay. So that's, that's about one third. The remaining one third ends up being local gear. It's gear they're catching, getting caught in around the islands. That might be marine debris. It might be fishing gear. It might be a mooring or something like that uh, around the islands. So that's that's a, a general picture I'm trying to paint for you and for the audience. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like that definitely puts it into perspective and thinking about like whales being entangled for that long and having to swim across like the ocean. And thankfully we have resources like your team and other teams at NOAA that work to entangle these animals, these very important animals to our ecosystem. And, you know, just kind of coming to a conclusion, do you have any other information that you'd like to share or any tips, um, numbers that are important to know if there's an animal in distress or just to report anything like please feel free to share well emily again i'm going to say thank you mahalo because you mentioned team and this is very much a team effort so you know the the hawaiian islands humpback whale national Marine sanctuary we coordinate but we work very closely with no fisheries they're the overseers that's where the permit the authorization comes from the coast guard helps out Office of Law Enforcement changes their, they'll typically take their enforcement hat on, put the responder hat on. So, so much of that is happening. The state of Hawaii, Department of Land and Natural Resources. So the list goes on. I can't, I can't acknowledge everyone, but I wanted to acknowledge one big part of that team is the community itself. The on community is foundational here because as many agencies and organizations 
that are involved, we cannot be on the water all the time, okay? We're not gonna find those whales. And while they are 40 feet long, they are a 40 foot needle in a very big haystack. So there's this important role that those same boats that maybe they could hit a whale, it could happen, right? They're not, they don't want it to happen, but it, it could. So they're gonna watch themselves, okay? They gotta be careful. But at the same time, they can be first responders. They can, just by being on the water, they could, so to speak, stumble across, be whale watching and find an entangled whale. And it is so valuable when they call up, they call right away, they let us know right away. Uh, by no means though, I'm saying engage. I know people are well-intentioned, they wanna help the whales, please don't do that. It, it almost hardly ever works out well for the responder, they get hurt, uh, there's been fatalities. And generally speaking, it doesn't work out well for the whale. So call the hotline number. No Fisheries has a wildlife reporting hotline number that's all these, you know, whether it's a monk seal, a turtle, an entangled whale, you can report that. And that number is 888-256-9840. It is a great number to have. Grant you, it's not likely that you're going to come across an entangled whale, okay, or some other marine animal in distress, but you might. It depends who you are. Audience-wise, if you're a, I would argue if you're a whale watch captain, you should have that number. If you're a fisherman, you should have that number, okay? Because those are those are the, those. It's it's tour operators, fishermen, um, um, researchers out there on the water. These are big. They're they're first responders. So I would say thank you for being a first responder. Keep it up, and that's going back to that Allah spirit here in Hawaii. Because boy, it's been really good. And the rescue that carried out just a couple days ago off of Kona. That's what happened. It was various tour boats that called it in. And, and when the opportunity arose that a response could be mounted by people that were trained and had the tools, the second tour boat said, we will stay with the whale. Okay. They said, we will monitor the whale from safe and legal distance. And that made all the difference in the world. I mean, then when the response team came out, they weren't looking for the needle in the haystack. They could you know, make the final assessment and cut that whale free. It's exactly what happened. And it was just a perfect scenario of people working together, people working as a team as appropriate. about Hawaii's whale season, we also talked to Dr. Mark Lammers of NOAA's Hawaiian Islands Humpback Whale National Marine Sanctuary. Here's what he had to say about some of his research so far. Yeah, so this whale season has started off uh, pretty well. We started to see whales uh, quite early this year, actually. We, we saw our, our some early sightings, even as early as September. But the whales filled in, um, as expected, and during the months of December and uh, January was, you know, it was quite a strong month for, for whales, and at least here on Maui, I should say. The last few days uh, we've been out and the numbers have been a little bit lower, but sometimes there's a little bit of a lull in terms of the whale numbers. So we're watching that closely to see if uh, perhaps there might be kind of an early exit of whales this year. How many whales are you seeing enter Hawaiian waters this year? Generally speaking, we estimate that's somewhere on the order of about maybe 10 to 12,000 whales visit Hawaii each year. Um, but they're not all here at the same time. So some will arrive early and leave a little bit early. Some will arrive a little bit later and also leave a little bit later. But that's about the number of whales that we typically expect on any given year. 
I know you and your crew go out in the water sometimes as well. And I was wondering, how many whales have you personally seen? Well, it's difficult to know the, a number. You know, we, we go out and, um, you know, sometimes, you know, we see, you know, dozens of, of whales any given day. Um, sometimes when we go out on a survey, we're actually counting whales. And, um, and so the number of whales that we count, or the, at least the number of groups that we see, uh, will be lower, like let's say in December, but in February or end of January, it's kind of the peak of the season. And we'll see, you know, I think the last survey that we conducted, we saw something like 250 groups of whales. And so, so quite a large number still, you know, we're still seeing quite a lot of whales. And really, you know, the numbers that we're talking about in terms of changes, you know, we're really monitoring some, you know, um, you know, variations of, you know, maybe 10%, 20% over time. Uh, but there are still quite a lot of whales out there. So uh, I don't want to get people to get the wrong message that, you know, the whales are sort of, you know, decreasing in numbers. There's still plenty out there to see. When you go out on the water for these surveys, how long are you guys out there for and how far do you guys go out? Well, we go out uh, quite, you know, quite far sometimes, you know, many miles out. Uh, we kind of cover all the waters that, um, that are between um, Maui and Kaholawe and Lanai and even out to Molokai. So what we call the four island region, uh, we cover all of those waters really. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the, the day, the, the length of time that we're out there, that really varies uh, depending on the mission. Um, so, for example, sometimes we go out and place these tags on whales so we can understand their behavior better. Uh, and some days, you know, we're out there for, you know, a good 10 or 11 hours at a time because, you know, it's, it's a long day. We're trying to make the most of the day. Um, other times we're doing surveys counting whales and those, you know, usually we're, you know, we're out there for like six or seven hours at a time. So it really varies on depending on what we're doing out there. I heard you also use passive acoustics. Can you tell me a little bit about how exactly that works? So the recordings um, uh, that we do, uh, we do by putting uh, long-term acoustic recorders on the bottom of the ocean, and they are basically programmed to record and store the data for many months at a time. We usually deploy these recorders at various places um, that we've been monitoring now for a number of years. Um, usually during the early part of the season or, you know, by around November or so, we usually deploy them and then we pick them up again in May or June and, uh, and you know, gives us a sense then of how the season went. So usually we don't really um, you know, know exactly how things went until we look at those data and that's not till like May or June or so. That's super cool. Thank you for sharing that information. And I was wondering, I'm trying to paint this picture for our viewers. How deep are these devices usually? Are they on a buoy kind of floating around on the surface or is there a weight that brings them down to the bottom of the ocean? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So these recorders, um, they they are moored on the ocean floor. So we have to use some some weights to kind of you know bring them down to the ocean floor. Um, they're usually coupled to what's known as an acoustic release, which is a, an instrument that you can send an acoustic signal to, and it will sort of release itself from the anchors that are holding it down. And then you have the, the recorder that's usually coupled with a float. And so when you, when you release the, the mooring, uh, the float brings it up to the surface and, and we can recover it. So that's the, you know, the, the, the basic uh, structure of these acoustic moorings. And through using these acoustics, what have you guys learned so far? So we use uh, passive acoustic monitoring to uh, listen for the amount of humpback whale singing that occurs in our waters here off of Maui, but we also listen off of Oahu and off of Kauai as well. 
And um, we are learning very much about, for example, when they arrive, um, when they leave, when the season is peaking. And it does allow us to, to compare one year to the next. And so what we've, one of the things we've been documenting is that over the past several years, uh, we've seen a, a trend towards generally an earlier end to the whale season. So where we used to have uh, the peak of the season occur sort of late in February, uh, even early March historically, uh, now uh, already it's you know the peak seems to occur in early February or mid-February. Um, so this is a trend that we've been we've been monitoring now for for a number of years. Through your research, is there any indication as to why this trend is happening? A few years ago, uh, around the 2014-15 time frame, we had a strong marine heat wave that took place in the Northeast Pacific, and that affected our population for for several years. For about three years or so, we saw decreased whale numbers. Uh, since that time, the, the numbers seem to have more or less recovered, but the timing seems to be uh, kind of off from what it was previously. Uh, now, we don't think it's necessarily related to this marine heat wave that occurred you know, several years ago, but perhaps is related to some sort of long-term shifts in the ecosystem, particularly in the ecosystems that the whales feed in, uh, the high latitudes, for example, off of Alaska and the Aleutians and places like that. Um, and so, of course, you know, the, the climate is changing, uh, waters are warming, and whales are having to adapt. So um, we suspect that it may have something to do with that. Can you talk a little bit more about any information of how climate change is impacting these whales? I mean, it's difficult to predict exactly what will happen with the whales um, as a result of climate change. Um, generally speaking, for many marine species, uh, it's expected or predicted that there's going to be a gradual sort of poleward shift. So in other words, a shift towards the, the poles, so either the North Pole or the South Pole, depending on which hemisphere you're in. Uh, and we suspect that humpback whales are going to be affected similarly um, as waters warm at the lower latitudes and also at the higher latitudes, uh, some of their prey may get pushed further to, to the north and our whales may have to, uh, you know, uh, work harder to find prey and maybe travel further north. Um, now, what that means in terms of uh, their presence here in Hawaii is difficult to say. Um, uh, it could mean that, you know, they're, they may over time shift to a more sort of northerly latitudes, perhaps up the island chain, maybe even to the northwestern Hawaiian Islands. Uh, we just don't know at this point. Um, you know, humpback whales tend to have pretty high site fidelity, and so they tend to go back to where they've been to before uh, and where they were born. But, um, but they're not like salmon necessarily that they kind of like have to go back there. So they're quite adaptable as well. So we just have to wait and see. But uh, we do expect that as climate change you know, increases and takes hold um, more and more on these ecosystems, that the whales will have to respond in one way or another. How concerning is the issue of climate change? I mean, climate change, we consider it uh, in the long term, at least, probably the greatest threat that, that uh, our whales face. And that's because uh, climate change will affect uh, their prey resource, and uh, and of course, prey is the key to to the the, the whale's well-being. Um, so, it, you know, there are sort of you know acute threats like um, uh, entanglement and vessel collisions and those kinds of threats. And then there's sort of more long-term chronic threats. And I would say that among those, uh, climate change is probably the greatest threat that that they face.
the whales are going to have to adapt to this changing world. And, um, you know, humpback whales are actually, you know, quite adaptable. That's why they've been very successful at recovering from, from many years and decades of, of whaling. Um, and so that's, they're, they're resilient in that sense. But of course, that means that they're going to have to probably do some things differently. And that's the part that we're trying to understand better is exactly how they're going to respond to this changing world and, you know, whether over time, um, you know, we're going to see some changes here in, in, in our waters um, that might affect, you know, their presence here. Uh, of course, we hope not, but, uh, but that's what we're trying to find out. Yes. Thank you again, Dr. Mark Lammers, for talking story with me today. Is there anything else that you'd like to add that I wasn't able to touch on? We always like to, to remind people that, um, you know, when the whales are here to be very respectful, um, we talked about some of the challenges that whales are facing uh, with climate change and, and other threats that they face. And so when they do come here, we want to make sure that we're as respectful as possible around them. And that means you know, not harassing them. That means driving slow when you're in an area with whales so to avoid things like collisions uh, with whales. Um, and, because we don't want to exacerbate the problems that they face. And so there are certain things that, you know, we don't have much control over. For example, you know, we can't make the water be cooler, you know, f through, you know, from climate change. But we can slow down and we can do other things and be respectful around whales so that we don't sort of, you know, exacerbate some of the issues that they face. For more stories like these or for more episodes of Repairing Earth, head to hawaiinewsnow.com or listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is your host, Emily Cristobal, and mahalo for listening. Pizza. Pizza? Pizza. Hungry for some pizza now? Yeah, that's what we thought. Get yours at Domino's Hawaii. We deliver aloha.